Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Welcome to the Engaging Mission Show with Brian Ensminger. We are bringing missions home. Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Greetings, world changers. I'm Brian Ensminger, and this is the Engaging Missions Show. Today's guest spent over 20 years as a corporate attorney and then transitioned to ministry. He's now the country director for E3 Partners in the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. He spends his time teaching Indonesian Christians to evangelize and to start house churches among both Muslims and Hindus. I'm talking about Mark Aspinwall. Mark, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot. So as we were chatting a little bit before the, the show, you shared some interesting things about sort of how your life is structured and some of the, the life changes that are going on in your life right now. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about your family right now? Yeah, well, I've, I've been married for actually 36 years as of two days ago. Oh, wow. And uh, my wife's a lawyer also and, and have four kids, all of them in college. My youngest, our daughter Grace, starts at UCLA in the fall. So we'll be empty nesters starting in about three weeks. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> so as, as you think about your life and your ministry, is there maybe a, uh, a meaningful quote or perhaps a scripture that's been foundational in how you approach things? <laughs> the, for me, my kind of key Bible verse is the Great Commission. <laughs> and, and the focus really is make disciples teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And it was probably 10 years ago, I, a missionary came and preached at our church about that, and he was sort of saying, you know, we often hear that as teach them all I have commanded. Mm -hmm. But the desired outcome is not knowledge, it's obedience. And one of the things that we need to obey is the command to make disciples. And, and so the, the kind of evidence or symptom of obeying the Great Commission is that I'm a disciple who makes disciples who obey Jesus, who in turn make more disciples. And so I ought to be able to look behind myself and see a chain of disciple-making disciples behind me. And, and at the time, you know, I was serving as the missions pastor of an evangelical free church, and I sort of asked myself the question, is that true of my life? Do I have a chain of disciple-making disciples behind me? And, and the honest answer was no, no, that I had a large number of people that I had a superficial influence on, but I didn't really have a deep disciple-making influence on anybody. And I'd say probably for the past 10 years, I've been in the process of trying to readjust my life um, so that that's more true. So when you talk about readjusting your life, what does that mean? How do you, how do you take that and start shifting things around? <laughs> well, well, really for me, the key principle is spending more time with fewer people um, that, that, Disciple-making is not a mass ministry. It's something that you do with people a few at a time. And you've got to invest deeply in a few people's lives to, um, to have that kind of impact on them. And, you know, really the strategy that for, 
that Jesus has had from the beginning is to invest deeply in a few people's lives so that they reach a level of discipleship where they're able to do the same. And, and through that, you can start to see exponential growth as your disciples make disciples and those disciples make more disciples. And, and so by working more deeply with fewer people in the end, Lord willing, you reach more. It's interesting that you would share that because, you know, when I think about Scripture, a lot of times what I think people, or at least me, a lot of times what I remember, let's just put this on me and people can decide for themselves, is the the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the big ministry events, if you will, in, from Jesus' ministry. And we forget, I think, a lot of times that there were 12 who went along with him pretty much everywhere, and there were another 120 that were pretty closely related to that. Has that been, has that, has that been a shift that you're trying to make in your life as well? Yes. Yeah. And, and um, the, the other shift is, and this will sound so dumb when I say it, but, but if you're trying to make disciples, nothing happens until somebody talks to somebody about Jesus. Hmm. And, and a lot of times, you know, if we have a discipleship program in our church, it starts with people who are already Christian and then the focus is on teaching them sound doctrine, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't really expect that they're going to, in turn, make disciples. And so, from the biblical perspective, it cuts off the ends of the process. It, it, it starts after people have already become Christian, and it ends before they reproduce. And... and and my goal is to have what I would call full-spectrum disciple-making, which starts with unbelievers and ends with multiplying disciples. It's, it's interesting that you would share that, because it, it almost feels like there's a dichotomy between uh, simply share the gospel and teach people to reproduce, a, a simple church model, if you will, mm-hmm. and then also desire for deep and accurate theology. Those seem to live in tension. Have you found a, a way to align those two? <laughs> um, that, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And, and I'm kind of a... I, I like thinking about theology, so I care <laughs> about it. But, but your question starts with a presupposition, uh-huh. and, the pre- and the presupposition is that formal theological training and hierarchical organizations are a protection against bad theology. And, and church history contradicts both of those assumptions. It, if you look at the history of heresy, for the most part, heresy doesn't arise from simple people trying to understand um, what God's Word means for their lives. For the most part, heresy arises from the institutions of higher theological learning. And um, and so we have this idea that if people go through this process of formal training, will assure sound doctrine. And historically, it hasn't proved out. And, and so I, I feel like if, you, if, you, if instead you have a bunch of small groups, and in every small group you've taught all of the members to ask the question, well, what does the Bible say? Um, and that it's not dominated by one strong leader, but you have a plurality of leaders, then that network of small groups will tend to self-correct theologically in a way that large sort of top-down hierarchical organizations um, don't. Because, because you see large top-down organizations sort of, they come under the control of one strong person who then has the ability to take them off course, and nobody's really able to say, wait, you know, that's not what the Bible says. Um, so, that's, so, that, so that's my answer to that concern, is, is that what I really want to do is I want to instill in our disciples the, the habit of looking at the scriptures for themselves, of, of treating the scriptures as the authority and always asking, you know, what does the Bible say? And when 
when they hear somebody else preaching to ask, you know, is that what the Bible says? Hmm. And, and I trust that God, through his word and through his spirit, will be able to protect his people. I think that's probably the first time I've ever heard it framed that way, and I really do appreciate you sharing that. Um, I would like to step back just a couple years, though, because you did mention that for a long time you operated differently, and then you transitioned into something like this. And that's not something that just magically happens. So d- did you have to work this out in any, in any particular ways? How, how did you begin to make that transition? Well, I'll, I'll try to make it short. So, <laughs> so I, was pra- I was practicing corporate law. And uh, in 1997, I went on a short-term mission trip with what's now called E3 Partners. It was then uh, Global Missions Fellowship. And I went to Russia. And we went into these apartment buildings. I had a Russian-believing teammate and a hired translator. And we'd knock on the door and say, hey, we're here to talk about God. Are you interested? And in a week, I saw... Eight people profess faith in Christ, which is not enough to change the world, but was more than all of my Christian life up to then. Mm. Um, and, I, and, I, and we were able to start a little home group in, in the house of one of the church members. And I came home on the plane thinking, man, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> And my wife and I sort of made a plan. Three years later, I quit my law job, came on staff as missions pastor at the church that we'd been a part of for a long time and served there for 10 years. And and I, I was getting old, you know, so I was 53 at the time, and I was thinking to myself, um, if I'm going to be a part of something big, I better get started. <laughs> and And... And I started asking the Lord, you know, what, what is there? What's going on, really, that's worth spending a life on? And I had kind of heard about church planting movements, but really didn't understand the specifics. And, and a guy named Curtis Sargent came on staff mm-hmm. uh, at E3 Partners, and he's really one of the, one of the gurus, you know, uh, in the church planting movement world. And I actually traveled to Indonesia with him. And went through some training that he had done. And, and I just felt like these movements that are happening where we're seeing rapid multiplication of house churches in these very hostile environments like China, India, uh, among the gypsies in Europe, now in Indonesia, many other parts of the world. That's really the biggest, most exciting thing that's happening on the face of the earth, I think. And, and if I could be a part of that, I'd love to be a part of that. Wow, that, that is powerful. That's, uh, I actually had Curtis on the show last year, and he shared some of those kind of stories as well, that people would come up to him and say, well, that worked in this country, but it won't work in this country. Well, that worked in there, but it won't work in Europe. That worked in Europe, but it won't work in the States. Have you, have you seen it working pretty much everywhere you go? Um, e- yes, but not easily. Okay. Can, can you share um, a little bit more? Yeah, well, it's easy when you, you know, when you read the books or you listen to Curtis or you go to the seminars, you, it sounds like, oh, I just go do these things and before I know it, I'll have a thousand churches. <laughs> uh, and that has not been my experience. Um, and when you actually sit the really fruitful practitioners down and talk to them, what you learn is they all had to work tremendously hard before God gave them the fruit. Really, just about all of them paid enormous personal prices. Um, And and so there's nothing sort of simple, well, I won't say there's nothing simple, because it is simple, but there's nothing easy about it. And for me, um, (laughs) one of the things I wish people had explained more was just the the idea of dealing with discouragement. Oh, yeah. Because the truth is, most of the people you share the gospel with will say no. Most of the people who say yes will fall away in a relatively short time. And of those who remain, only a small fraction will end up being, you know, the 30, 60, 100-fold multipliers that Jesus talks about in the parable of the soil. 
And, and so what that means is you need to share the gospel a lot to get a few faithful multipliers. Yeah. Um, and, and you just need to be ready to do that. You need to be ready to do that. That doesn't really work a lot with our American mentality of figure out the best way to do it and expect it to work every time, does it? Yeah, no, no. And, and honestly, it for me, I don't like getting rejected. And so I have to kind of, I mean, on some days I'll say to myself, well, I'm going to go out and get rejected by five people. Mm-hmm. Because, cause it, <laughs> and this sounds a little bit stupid, and maybe it reflects a lack of faith, but I, for me, it's a little bit easier if I just sort of assume that they're going to say no, and then I'm surprised if they say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but... But now I forget what the question was. <laughs> I think you answered the question. And, and this is the part of the interview where I would typically ask you to share a challenge or something like that. But I think I'm going to hold that off because when we talked before the interview started, you had wanted to talk about some of the challenges you've been facing as a ministry. And so I'd like to save that for after the break. So for those of you listening, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus to Mark's ministry. And I think that we're going to hear a number of things that didn't work right. So be encouraged. Not everything works all the time. Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Minute. Hi, this is Scott McClellan with your Leadership Minute. I'd like to reflect on with you at the moment here a quote by Rick Warren. The first job of leadership is to love people. Leadership without love is manipulation. It's possible that when you hear that quote, you wince or some old pain that you experienced under the loveless leadership of others is brought to the surface. If so, I ask the Lord right now just to touch that and, uh, and, uh, and heal your pain. I think we've all experienced loveless leadership, and some of us certainly have demonstrated it as well. I can think of examples in my own life where I have not been motivated by love in my influence. And thank God I've uh, recognized those and asked Him and others to forgive me. I think we're talking about motivations here. Why is it that we do what we do? And love is a motivation that cannot be improved upon. Love is the motivation that God so beautifully illustrates as primary and as preeminent, I think, in the Scriptures, particularly in 1 Corinthians 13. That's the kind of love that we want to demonstrate in our influence over others. Leadership without love is manipulation. Let's don't focus on that. Let's focus on putting love inside of our influence and letting that be the reason why we do what we do. We stand for the things we stand for and we behave in an exemplary way. Leadership that is led by love is the highest and most true influence that we can have on other people. I want to encourage you today to weave love into every fabric of your leadership and be a blessing to others as we're encouraged here by Rick as we're encouraged here by Rick Warren to do. Blessings to you as you're going forward. This is Scott McClellan with your leadership minute. If you'd like to contact me or us, please do so at fxmissions.com or on most social media outlets at fxmissions. Have a good one. This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Minute. If you have a leadership question, send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com. That's feedback at engagingmissions.com. All right, we are back with Mark Aspinwall. We just heard about some of the transitions that he's had in his life, and now we're going to shift our focus away from him individually and more toward the ministry that God has him doing. Now, Mark, before we get into some of the challenges that you've been facing in your ministry, why don't you frame up for us what it is that you do? Yeah, yeah. I, at, at my point in life, I felt like the, 
I was not really going to be able to move to a new country, learn a new language, and be an effective residential missionary. And, and so what we decided to do as a family is I'm sort of a commuting missionary. I commute mostly to Indonesia and to Cuba, and I train national Christians, Christians in those countries, how they can share the gospel in a way that people in their country will understand, and then how they can start simple... Bible study groups in the homes of new believers with the goal of those Bible study groups becoming biblical churches uh, and multiplying disciples and, and new churches. And are you doing that only in Indonesia and Cuba? Are you also doing something here in the States? <laughs> well, I, I just, when I started doing this, I thought to myself, if the people I'm training actually do what I'm asking them to do, some of them are going to get beaten up and thrown out of their families or maybe even killed. Mm -hmm. And it would just be wrong for me to say essentially to them, hey, I read this in a book, you should do it. Uh, it, it really, it, I feel like it's necessary for me to have any integrity to be putting into practice the same things that I'm teaching. So my family and I also are trying to do the, the exact same thing in, in Southern California. We have a group that meets in our home, and we've started a number of other groups um, as well. Okay, that's good. Now, I, I, first off, before we head into this section, I just want to say thank you for your openness. What we're going to do is talk about some of the challenges that Mark has faced. And part of this is, I think, a little bit on his heart, and also several of my past guests have just shared that sometimes it's encouraging to hear that it's not all puppies and kittens, that sometimes <laughs> it's hard, and that's normal, but, but God sees us through it. So, Mark, I don't have any idea how to frame this up except to say, let's go, let's talk about some of the challenges, some of the things that didn't work. Let, I want to talk first about how to think about this, which is, Good. I started working in Indonesia, and, and I... Was blessed to have as a mentor Curtis Sargent, who's probably as knowledgeable as anybody uh, about church planning movements. And I would call him up and I'd say, Hey, Curtis, I'm thinking about doing this or that. And he would always say, That's great, Mark. You should do that. And after the fourth or fifth time, I said, Curtis, why is it that everything I suggest you think is a great idea? And this is what he said He says, Mark, here's how I think about it. In Indonesia right now, there's about 200 million people going to hell. What could Mark Aspinwall possibly do to make that worse? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was a little bit insulting, but honestly liberating. Because what it said to me is, the biggest mistake is inaction. Um, because the status quo is unacceptable. And trying almost anything is better than doing nothing. And to me, that gave me a great sense of freedom to sort of say, all right, well, I'm going to start moving forward. I'll start trying to do something and then fix it as I go. And so here's what we did. I, I had been introduced into a large national organization um, with connections with all of the major Christian denominations or all of the major evangelical denominations in Indonesia. And I started doing trainings with really far more important people than I deserve to be training. Hmm. And so I'd be doing trainings with 100 or 200 pastors or denominational officials. And in three years, I think we trained probably three or 4,000 pastors and denominational leaders, and really had virtually zero fruit. Wow. Um, there, there were, a, you know, we would train them how to evangelize. They'd go out and share Christ. There were a number of professions of faith, probably some hundreds of professions of faith. But in terms of groups that were founded and multiplied, basically zero. Um, and I tried to think, well... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of fun going and putting on a seminar, um, but it doesn't seem to be obtaining, attaining the desired objective. What can we do? And we learned a couple things. One was probably 
pastors and existing church leaders are not your your best candidate to become a T4T doer for a couple of reasons. One is they already have a job. Mm. Um, and, and they're busy doing the things that, that they're doing, you know, preaching every Sunday, organizing the church activities, so forth. Second reason, um, they don't have very many non-Christian friends. And it's just true of most of us who are in full-time ministry, the longer we're in full-time ministry, the fewer non-Christian friends we have. And, and so for me personally, the path of least resistance is for me to hang out with Christians all week. And I have to do things on purpose to be around non-Christians. And it's the, true, it's the same thing is true of pastors and denominational leaders pretty much anywhere in the world. The third thing is that, and this is a little bit difficult to say, well, I'll try to say it nicely, is that starting a bunch of home groups in houses of unbelievers doesn't address the pressing problems faced by a local church pastor. Your typical local church pastor is struggling with budget. Um, and, he, and he's trying to figure out, how do I keep the lights on? How do I pay the rent? How do we pay my salary? And even if he succeeds at T4T, even if he starts 100 groups in new believers' houses, um, that, that's not going to solve his problem. Hmm. And, and so he's working in a structure that... That starting a bunch of home groups and houses of new believers, it, it just doesn't help him survive in, in the structure he exists in. And, and that we found that two things were necessary. We needed to take our training down market, <laughs> okay. down to sort of regular church members. And honestly, the, we found it that our best doers were usually not people who'd been around the church forever. They were usually people who were relatively new believers, still had a lot of contacts with unbelievers, um, and who weren't totally acculturated into traditional church culture. The second thing we found is that doing a three-day training seminar is just not enough. That that even when people would hear what we had to say and try to put it in practice, there was this strong tendency to sort of spring back to the way that you were used to doing things. Mm. And, and if you didn't have a continuing mentoring relationship with them, almost inevitably the groups that w- were started would end up becoming traditional cell groups of churches and would not multiply. Um, and so it was what we now have is I have two Indonesian guys working in two different parts of the country, and we sort of have nodes of activity around those two guys, and, and I'll come and do training, and then they'll do follow-up and mentoring of the people we've trained, really, of the doers we identify out of the people we've trained. Um, and that in that way, we can start to see lasting fruit. That, that's interesting that you would share that. So what I think I'm hearing is that from your perspective, somebody like me is probably not your ideal candidate for training. Yeah, that's yeah. probably right. I mean, that, that's fair. Um, I mean, I've, I've been in the church since I was much, much younger, <laughs> getting old now. So yeah, I, I totally get that. It's hard to make that cultural shift, right? To, to change your perspective on, on this kind of thing. Yeah, and you'll find a few people like, like me. I'm an old guy coming, starting at this late in life, and I'm, I don't know, weird enough, I guess, um, to try some stuff that's really different. But most people aren't. And, and, and when Jesus talks about, there's two places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about, you know, new wine, old wineskins. Mm-hmm. And in one of them, he says, and no one, having tasted the old, has any desire for the new. 
and and that's profound, <laughs> yeah. you know. And and so if you if you try to persuade people who are already doing church one way to do it a new way, you the response you're mostly going to get is no, I have no desire to do that. You've talked a little bit about some challenges and some potential discouragement, things that you face because it's not all puppies and kittens and rainbows. Yeah. So when you're facing those, how do you how do you overcome or persevere through that frustration and that de- possible dejection that comes? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I often say to God, you know, God, you own me. You know, my time is yours. And if you want to waste my time, that's your right. And I, and I think it's bad theology to believe that God always guarantees us, you know, that we're going to move from one victory to the next. Hmm. And, and there certainly are people, in my mind, I always compare Stephen and Paul. And I think, well, who was the godlier, Stephen or Paul? And in my mind, uh, the answer is, I don't know. As best I can tell from the New Testament, both of them were doing exactly what God wanted. And the outcome of Stephen's ministry was he was stoned to death. Yeah. Um, and the outcome of Paul's ministry was he started a bunch of churches. And, and God has the right to decide, am I Stephen or Paul? Uh, yeah. So that's part of what I tell myself. <laughs> the, the the other thing is I just I just I guess I'm constantly when we do something I'll always come back and ask myself so how could we be more effective what could we do differently to be more effective and so we're constantly tweaking uh, what we do let let me talk to you just about yeah. sort of the sequence of hurdles we found that we need to get over yeah yeah that'd be great so so when I when I do a training. And it doesn't matter if it's a training in America, a training in Indonesia. The first problem you have is people are not comfortable sharing the gospel. And they're especially not comfortable sharing the gospel cross-culturally. And, and so when we do a training, always what a part of that training is for an hour and a half or two hours, we'll go out on the street and we'll talk to people about Jesus. And, and I would say a good percentage of the people I train basically go, they leave, they go out the front door and pretend to talk to people. They, they actually don't talk to anybody. Hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and, and nothing happens unless somebody talks to somebody about Jesus. And so you've, you've got to get over that hurdle. You've got to get people sharing the gospel a lot. And if, and if you can't achieve that, then you'll never see a movement. Once you get over that hurdle, once you, you've given people the tools that they need, you've given them the chance to practice enough so that they feel competent and confident to do it, you've coached them, you've encouraged them, maybe that you've gone out with them and they're sharing the gospel, the next hurdle that we have training sort of traditional church Christians to do T for T is their default setting if somebody receives Christ is to bring that new person back to church. And, and praise the Lord, you know, praise the Lord when you add a, a new member to an existing church. But the history in a place like Indonesia is if you take somebody from one of the majority religions, Muslim or Hindu, and you bring them to an existing church, the result for them is going is gonna to be that they'll be rejected by their family and really cut off from opportunities to share with the people who used to be their friends and family. And so though you'll add a member to the church, you'll lose the opportunity to multiply. And so the next thing we really have to work on is, you know, when somebody's open, when somebody makes a profession of faith, your goal is not to bring them back to your church. Your goal is to help them start a group that can become a church in their house. And, and we've had some success at that. The next hurdle you run into is 
most people, the church planting model that they have in their mind is I'm going to go into a new place. I'm going to win some people to Christ. I'm going to gather those people together, and I'm going to be the pastor of that church. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lord willing, one day there'll be enough people that they're going to be able to afford to build a building and pay me a salary. Now, the problem with that is if that's your model, you can only do one church at a time. And the question I always ask those guys is, how many churches did Paul start? And I don't know the exact answer. Reading through the New Testament, it looks to me like 15 or 20. And then the next question I ask is, well, how many churches was Paul the pastor of? And I think the answer to that question is zero. Because Paul would start a church, he would quickly raise up local leaders, and then he would move on. But what would have happened if Paul had stopped and pastored the first church he started? And I think the answer to that question is what would have happened is the course of the history of Christianity would have been fundamentally altered because that movement of multiplying churches that Paul shepherded wouldn't have happened because he camped out in one place as pastor. But Paul instead had the vision to multiply leaders who could pastor the churches so that he could move on to the next place and the next place. And, and so one of the places we often get stuck is we'll have a guy who gets excited about sharing Christ cross-culturally. He gets excited about starting up groups. He'll get two or three groups started up. He's leading both of those, all those groups. And at that point, he's done because he doesn't have any more time to lead groups. And until he can raise up leaders, he's done. He can't grow anymore. Um, and, and, and that right now for us is kind of where we're, experience, where we're stuck the most. I, I'll just I'll tell you a story. We had a guy who we trained, good guy, went out and shared Christ, started a little, little group in a boarding house um, that was, had both uh, Hindu and Muslim guys living there. Um, it was going great. He, he did just what he's supposed to do. He trained those guys how to share the gospel. One of those new believers went out and, and shared with another family. They received Christ. Um, and because he had a more traditional church planting model, he said to this new believer, oh, invite your now believing friends to come to our group. Mm-hmm. That group grew to 25 or 30 people. The neighbors started complaining um, and it got shut down. And what would have been better is if he had said to, the, to that first-generation new believer, let me coach you in leading a new group in the house of your friends, these brand-new believers. And so he would have multiplied groups or churches. He would have kept the size down and avoided... Um, you know, creating problems with the neighbors, and he would have raised up leaders who could go on and multiply without him. Um, and, and for us right now, that's sort of the, the critical issue that we're hung up on and working to overcome. That's good. So you've, you've outlined three of those challenges for us. We, we do probably need to go ahead and move on. But before we take a break, I would like to ask just one more question. What is it that fuels your passion? I guess for me, really, I just feel like this is the most exciting thing happening on the face of the earth. <laughs> That's great. So for those of you listening, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus one last time to toward you as the listener. We're going to start learning from some of the things that Mark has picked up over the years, and we're going to provide some ways that you might be able to apply those in your life. So stick with us. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Arlene and I, Arlene and I have really, um, we claim, you know, Psalm, the whole chapter of Psalm 34 is 
an awesome is you know an awesome reminder of focusing on the Lord, seeking the Lord. But verse three of chapter thirty-four says, "O magnify, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together." And you know that has always been. It you know it doesn't matter who it is, men, women, seniors, um, young couples. You know we want them. We want them involved, and we want them to do it with us, so that you know it's because it's about exalting God. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com/slash/subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. We are back with Mark Aspinwall. He's been talking about some of the challenges and some of the roadblocks that he's hit, some of the things that he's doing in in practicing the T4T or the training for trainers method. Now we're going to shift our focus. And I think this is great because Mark spent 20 years in the workforce as as an attorney. Then he made the shift to a traditional pastoral role, if you would, or a full-time ministry. And now he's coaching people in church planting. So a wide breadth of experience there. So Mark, I know from looking at the show stats, the people that listen to the show and things like that, that most of the listeners of this show are here in the U.S. They care about missions and ministry, but they don't necessarily feel called to vocational missions or vocational ministry. And a lot of times in that position, we can start to wonder if what we're doing in the marketplace really matters. So what would you share with somebody who is starting to struggle with what whether what they're doing really matters? Oh, what a great question. The if one of the characteristics of church planting movements is almost all of the leadership are is bivocational, um, and and the reason is simple, it that is to multiply, it has to be cheap, and and so if you've got a system that requires a lot of salaries, it can't multiply, and. And so if you look at the house church movements in China or in India, the very, very large, large house church movements, almost all of the leadership has normal jobs. And so, f- so for a person here in the U.S. who has a normal job, you can be a, a church planting movement person. You, you can put into effect these principles, and I would, I would encourage you to do that. Um, I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you a little bit about our own personal experience. Um, we tried <laughs> about, I guess it was four years ago. I was coming home from Indonesia, having gotten the pep talk from Curtis Sargent, and I and I thought to myself, "Well, what am I going to do?" You know. And there were all kinds of ideas running around in my head. And I thought, well, at least I need to start one of these groups. And so I prayed and asked God, would you please send me somebody to share the gospel with? And real quickly, a friend that I hadn't heard from for about 10 years um, texted me saying, Mark, I have a problem. I need to talk to you. And she came over to the house and my wife and I shared the gospel with her and she received Christ. And we started a little group uh, in our house, which wasn't best. We should have started it in her house. But anyway, we started a group. Her son and daughter came. She and her son and daughter and a nephew received Christ. And and really, the past four years in our household, the Aspenwall house, have been by far the most productive time in our Christian lives. We've seen around 20 people baptized in the jacuzzi in our backyard. (laughs) You know, which isn't, if you compare it to some of these huge movements in China, it's, it's small, but it's a lot more than I had done before then. And I really feel like what's happening in these church planning movement ideas is there's this convergence of missions and just simple discipleship. That that following Jesus and making disciples is basically the same in the United States as it would be if you were a missionary in Kazakhstan. So you might as well start doing it now. And and that way if you end up in Kazakhstan, you'll be better at it. <laughs> yeah. 
What would you share with somebody who's looked up and they realize, hey, my neighbors, my coworkers, the people I see in the store, they might actually need to meet Jesus. What would you share with them? What's something they could do? <laughs> my, my goal, honestly, and, and this has changed the way I used to think about evangelism is I used to think, you know, I basically have to take somebody and wrestle them to the ground by the force of my logic until they finally say, I give up, I accept Jesus. And as it turns out, that never works. And, and Jesus tells us why. In John six forty four, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And, and what that means is it's impossible to, for anybody to be saved unless God is at work in them. And, and so really what I'm doing is I'm looking for people that God is working in. And, and so I'm constantly trying to say little things that let people know, um, hey, I'm somebody who loves Jesus. <laughs> And, and I feel like if I do those things, I can quickly gauge, um, is this a person who's open or not? If it's a person who's open, I'll share kind of the story of how I came to Christ and what Jesus has done in my life. If they're still open, I'll explain the gospel to them. Um, but, but the first thing I would encourage you to do is just think through the questions you get asked every day. Maybe it's, how are you? Maybe it's, how are your children? Maybe it's, what do you do for a living? Hmm. And think about how you can answer those questions in a way that let people know, this is somebody who loves Jesus. And, and normally, the way we try to do that, you, we do a better job identifying ourselves as a person who goes to church than we do as a person who loves Jesus. And, and, and for somebody who doesn't go to church, when we, when we say, and, and people try to do this all the time, they go, oh, oh, I went to church on Sunday. And they're thinking, oh, this guy will respond to that. That, honestly, for people who don't go to church is a little bit off-putting. Uh, they kind of think, oh, he's one of those. But if you can figure out how to, how to share a little bit of what Christ means to you in a transparent way, that draws people in. Hmm. I'll give you an example. So people always ask me, well, what do you do? <laughs> you know? and, and I could say, oh, well, I'm a missionary to Indonesia. And people would think, oh, he's one of those. So what I've started saying is, you know what I do? Is I help people start little groups where they can figure out for themselves what the Bible says and encourage each other to put it into practice. And I was sitting on an airplane next to a um, Chinese-American young woman, and she said that. She said, oh, what do you do? And I said, well, I help people start little groups where they can learn from the Bible, you know, what God wants from them and encourage each other to put them into practice. And she said, oh, I'd love to be in a group like that. <laughs> Uh, but you kind of have to think about how you can answer questions in a way that opens the door to you, the reality of your Christian life. All right. So we're, we're coming up toward the end of the interview. Uh, and I do want to know, in case, in case somebody's listening and they're just wanting to know more, if this is kind of pinging them, is there a book, a resource, a person that you would direct them toward? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and actually, these days, the problem is not that there's not enough information. The problem is there's too much information mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's just tons of books. So let me let me recommend people to a few resources that to get started. Yeah. The first, because I'm an E3 guy, is take a look at the e3partners.org website, um, and basically there we're we're planning mostly short-term trips that fold into church planning movement strategies with the people on the ground to, to follow them up. Second, to understand more about church planning movements, 
I'd suggest two books. One is the Church Planting Movements book written by David Garrison. That's sort of the first book that kind of explained what we were observing around the world um, and described church planting movements. The second is a book called T for T, A Discipleship Re-Revolution, written by Ying Kai and Steve Smith. Ying Kai is a Chinese guy who led the largest church planting movement in modern history, more than one, I think, 1.7 million baptisms in one large city in, in China. Wow. And that's more of a how-to manual. It, it's saying, okay, here's what we're seeing that works. Mm-hmm. The other thing, if you're not a big reader, is I would subscribe to a podcast. It's called Movements with Steve Addison. Steve is a guy, an Australian guy, and he has tons of great speakers, uh, sort of CPM-oriented speakers on mm-hmm. all the time. And for me, that's always refreshing and encouraging and challenging to hear those guys. Good deal. And for those of you listening, all of these resources will be linked up in the show notes, which will be at engagingmissions.com slash Mark Aspinwall. So you'll be able to find all of those links right there. Now, Mark, we are almost done. Do you have maybe one last piece of advice you could offer us and a way for people to connect with you if they'd like to? Oh, sure. Yeah. Probably the best way to connect is just send me an email. Okay. Um, and it's my name, mark.aspenwall at e3partners.com. My last name is A-S-P as in Peter, I-N-W-A-L-L. And, and I'll tell you one of my personal philosophies, which is, if you're trying to do it, I will help you. Um, because I feel like kind of the best way I can multiply my own effectiveness is by helping others. And, and so if you're sincerely trying to put it into practice, don't just feel totally free to send me an email. I'll be glad to help you. That's great. And uh, any advice for us? <laughs> I guess I'd, I'd, leave you, I'd leave you with Curtis Sargent's advice, which is, you know, we live in a great big world with billions of people going to hell. What could you possibly do to make that worse? And really, the only answer is, the thing you could do to make it worse is nothing. So go try something, and then fix it. (laughs) That's great. Mark, (laughs) I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this, along with show notes, by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.